Good evening. I want to thank you each for being here this evening. It is an encouragement to me. It uplifts me when I look out and see smiling faces. Uh, an opportunity for us to study another portion of God's word and his will for us. This evening, uh, I didn't give a title for the directory because I wasn't sure exactly what the title ought to be. So you can probably help me after we finish this evening to tell me what the title ought to be for Jason. If you would, at this time, turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, 44 through, 36, or 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm an analyst. I've spent about 30 years now looking at information to detect patterns and improve my understanding of, of people, of conditions, and events based on those patterns. And I have to tell you that the analyst in me loves these two parables because they fit into a broader theme of Matthew 13. Now I started out looking at Matthew 13 and there are, there are seven different parables talked about in Matthew 13. And there's a lot to draw from there. The comparison and contrast of what each parable says in a larger message that Christ is presenting to an audience. Now, I will say that uh, I believe the power of Christ's parables as he sought to help people understand abstract divine issues and description of, through the description of real world exercises is important for us today as it was then. The ability to take something that is complex and turn it into something that is simple so that people can grasp it and live it more effectively is a very powerful thing. Having these two parables placed side by side, offering lessons not just in the form of a single story, but two that we can compare and contrast can be useful to us. I believe. As I said, there were seven in the chapter, and when I started to try and parse those, it got too complex too rapidly, and we were going to be here for a couple of hours, so I thought I'd break it down into something that was a little more controlled, and I'm seeing at least a couple of people out there nodding with gratitude. So we'll go forward from that. Now, to do justice to our review of, the, of these two parables, it's important that we start with the context in which they were delivered, the people to whom they were spoken, who spoke them, uh, who he was speaking to. Uh, what Matthew drew from that and who he was speaking to and what we can take from it today. Why does this matter? Because a closer look reveals that the message likely meant something different to the original audience than it means to us today. That doesn't make it of less value, but it means that we need to appreciate what they were receiving, what Christ meant for them to get from it, but what we can take from it today as recipients of Christ's word. Now, Jesus, as we find him in chapter 13 of Matthew, is speaking to a large crowd of people from a boat in a lake in Galilee. While Galilee had an increasingly diverse population at this particular time with Roman occupation, many of those who were present at that lake were probably Jews or Jewish converts. Uh, this matters because the central topic of Jesus' message throughout chapter 13 concerns the kingdom of heaven. And that was a very important topic to the Jews. The Torah, the Talmud, and, and the Old Testament as we see it 
and, and the quotes from the Old Testament that we see in the New all reflect the core belief among the Jews that they were God's chosen people, that, his, that they were part of his kingdom on earth. They describe him as a king. Even when they had earthly rulers, they viewed themselves as a spiritual kingdom within a secular one. They melded those two ideas together. In their minds, the two were linked. The condition of the worldly kingdom showed the state of the spiritual one. A thriving nation was a sign of God's pleasure. A conquered or dispersed nation was a sign of his punishment for, for their failings. The perspective framed their expectations of what a Messiah would be. He was going to come back and reestablish the kingdom, right? It would also affect the way they viewed the redemption that they would receive and the reestablishment of the kingdom and where it would be and what it would look like. It is that preconception of, that Jesus is addressing from the boat in Galilee. He wants the Jews to look beyond the old law and their, and their place as God's chosen people within the Jewish nation. He wants them to embrace a new law and a new and broader definition of what it means to be chosen. Matthew, whose gospel was originally intended for the Jewish audience, highlighted seven of those parables in chapter 13. And he did several others throughout his book that I recommend that you go and look at. As a matter of fact, a study of the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, is worthwhile. Because it shows you a broader way of things that, that are symbolized by the kingdom of heaven. And that are not just a single thing that we can fixate on, but a broad range of actions, individuals, Christ-centered, and objectives. It is where we are, we are aspiring to be. Not just where we are now, but where we aspire to be. Now the two parables I want to look at this evening are good examples of what Christ was trying to convey. Just two examples among the many. The two speak in a different way, speak to the different ways in which people find their path to salvation and their eternal home with God. In the parable of the treasure, the man stumbles upon it by chance. In the parable of the pearl, the individual discovers it after a concerted search and evaluation, looking for something very specific. This speaks to a diversity of ways in which we can discover our salvation. Each of them equates the kingdom of heaven to something specific and unique. In verse 44, we read that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. In verse 45, we see it as the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. In the first, Christ equates the kingdom to the object being discovered and ultimately possessed. In verse 45, he equates it to the one doing the discovering and acquiring. It's two very different things, but part of the same story. Now, the Jews in Jesus' time, at least those who were receptive of this message, would have recognized his parables as a call to change the way they saw their relationship with God. They, he, they were no longer to see themselves just as the chosen children of Abraham, but as members of a new and higher kingdom with a higher calling. Now, we may not have precisely the same baggage to overcome that they did, but Christ's message is still valuable to us today. It's easy with the cross behind us to think of the kingdom of heaven as a place we are going to, the objective, if you will. The treasure that we seek is somewhere out there. It is important for us to read Matthew 13 in this context because anytime you get fixated on one aspect of the kingdom of heaven, you risk missing the larger message, just as the Jews were at risk of doing. 
And for us tonight, it is valuable to take the time to consider what these two parables mean to us and what parallels we can draw from them between the two individuals in the parables and the lives that we are expected to live in Christ today. Now, the first thing that we see both individuals in these parables doing is seeing something they recognized as valuable. Hey, hey, this is worthwhile. This is useful. This is wonderful. This is valuable. Now, the story is told of a poor old woman in the Scottish Highlands many years ago who was visited by a gentleman because he had heard that she was in, in a bad way, that she was in need. The old lady complained of her condition and remarked that her son had moved to Australia several years back and seemed to be doing fairly well for himself. But he does nothing to help you, said the man. Well, no, he writes to me regularly once a month, but only sends me a little picture with his letters. Now, the gentleman asked to see the pictures that he had been sending for, for all those years. And when she handed them over, he found that each of them was a 10-pound note. For years, this woman every month had been receiving a 10-pound note, back when 10 pounds was a lot of money. It turned out this woman was one of the richest people in town. And she didn't even realize it because she didn't know what she had in her possession. How like us that can be. Now, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but if you consider the story of the Samaritan woman at the well who met Christ in John chapter 4, she had essentially the same problem. She was standing in the presence of the Messiah, and she didn't understand what she had. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. John 4, starting in verse 7. It reads, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I gave, give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay? He's offering her the wellspring of eternal life, and she is thinking to herself, I'm not going to have to cart water from my house anymore. It's wonderful. And it's only then that he goes on and kind, of, and kind of develops the relationship. And by the end of this exchange, she understands that he is something special. She goes back into the village and tells others that he is something special. And it changes the life of the, city around, of the town around her. But at this particular point in time, she is standing in the presence of salvation, and all she can think about is not having to haul water. She doesn't recognize the value. The first important step taken by both the man and the merchant in our parables was that they recognized that they had something valuable on their hands. The second is that they both took steps to appraise the value of what they had found. It wasn't enough that they just recognized that there was value. They had to think about how much value. Now, the man with the treasure appears to have had a fairly straightforward assessment. This is worth more than all I have. I mean, it was a yes or no proposition for him. The second, who was comparing pearls, had to be more discriminating. 
He was not just choosing yes or no. He was choosing the most valuable among many. Now, I had to smile this morning when Mitch said something about having to pick the best rather than the good because it made me think of where I was going with this. Thank you, Mitch. That was a nice entree. It is for us as Christians to be picking the best rather than just the good in our life as Christians, in our walk with God. And, and what Mitch said this morning is, is very true and applicable to what I'm talking about this evening. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees did an appraisal and rejected outright the value of what Christ had to offer. He warned the apostles about preaching the word to such people in Matthew 7, 6, when he said, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample you under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, pigs aren't very discriminating animals. And wild pigs, which were more common in those days, could be positively dangerous. Uh, to them, there are two things. There is food and there is not food. And if you try and give them something that is not food and they are very, very hungry, they may turn on you. That is the parallel that Christ is drawing today. What are you laughing at? She knows. Um, the, uh, the story here, though, is very apt because what he is speaking of with the scribes and the Pharisees in this particular case is, is a truth that they themselves are not prepared to see him as the Messiah. They are not prepared to accept the truth of what he has to offer. And because he does not fit food or no food to them, they are prepared to turn on him and are seeking ways to kill him. They have rejected the value of what he has to offer. Now, it's not just enough to recognize that Christ offers us something of value. It has to be the pearl of great price that we spend all to obtain. The rich young ruler knew that Christ was someone with special, with something to offer that was unique. And he came to Christ looking for the answer. He knew that he had something that he wanted. But he failed in his appraisal of the value. In Mark chapter 10, we read how he comes to Christ and how he approaches Christ and says, what do I need to do? And Christ lays it out for him. He says, here's what, here's what you need to do to receive the gift that I am offering you. And what's the answer at the end? The rich young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. He appraised what Christ offered him against what he already had, and he found it wanting. And he wasn't prepared to sacrifice what he had for what he could obtain. It was a faulty appraisal. Now, the apostles acknowledged that Christ was the Son of God, yet despite their appraisal that he was worth following for those three years, they frequently showed that they didn't fully appreciate what God had in mind or the full extent of the value that was being, that was being given with that life. They didn't really grasp the value until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And in point of fact, you don't even see it fully conveyed that they do get it until Pentecost which is kind of an interesting consideration because their estimation of the value increases as their understanding does. And there is something in that for us today. John chapter 14, verses 6 through 9 reads, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after all I have been after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Philip is asking for something that he had all along. He hasn't fully appreciated the presence of Christ in his life and what it means to have God with him. Luke chapter 24, verses 30, uh, 36 through 49, we find out where they begin to get the fuller picture. This is after Christ has returned af after his resurrection and is among them before his ascension. Now, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were st and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the, in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And then he instructs them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit, because that's what's coming next, to give them the fullest appreciation of what they have been given and what hope they have for the future. And we see that as they stand forth on Pentecost to proclaim their faith in a powerful way that moves nations and, and touches us today. Now, if you're in business, the act of appraisal involves judging the value or importance of an object, an action, or an outcome to set a price. Rarity, condition, and utility are often the elements of that type of evaluation. As Christians, we recognize that the value of our salvation is, is a reflection of a price that has already been paid for us and the love that it was demonstrated by God on our behalf. Rarity, condition, and utility are elements in our consideration as well. The source of our salvation is totally unique. No one, no one but a benevolent God could have, could have acquired us from the depths of the sin in which we live. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. That is a unique unique thing because no other source could have provided it. It's rare. And that makes it valuable. The source of our salvation was pure. The condition of the sacrifice that was made was perfect. You cannot ask for better. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was perfect. Not only was he rare, he was perfect. The source of our salvation was sure and complete and offered to all. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you want to turn with me there, we'll look at that together. Romans 6, 1 through 7. Now, 
Now here, the author is speaking, speaking to Christians and talking about the power of grace. And it begins, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That if we have been united with him in death like, the, like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we might no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It was a complete victory. It was a complete resolution of our sin. It was a complete reclaiming of our souls from the law of sin and death. The sacrifice that was made to us was rare. It was so unique. It was pure and perfect, and it was complete. When you consider and appraise the value on those terms alone, you understand how great a price was paid and what it means for us and the way that we should be evaluating what we do in return, how we handle this precious treasure, this pearl of great price that has been presented to us. The two men in the parables didn't hesitate. Having determined value when they found it, they gave up all that they had to acquire it. Now recall for a minute what I said about the kingdom of heaven. It is not just the prize. It is not just heaven. It is the one who quests for discovery, the one who seeks the pearl, the one who finds it and acts accordingly. There is an action at the end of this story that is something that calls on all of us because it says, having discovered something of great price, what do you give up to attain it? What's worth what is it worth in your life to have eternal life? The price of our salvation is paid in full, so there's nothing that we can give that, that can truly claim it for ourselves. However, we are called upon to give what we have. We are to honor the sacrifice. We are to be the people that our God wants us to be, to live the lives that he has called upon us to live. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you are aware now that there is a treasure to be had. You are aware and have been told there is a pearl of great price. The appraisal is yours to make. This is an opportunity to stand up and be counted in the kingdom of heaven. Because by doing so, you enter into that kingdom and live as part of the kingdom here on earth in the anticipation that the God who loves you enough to sacrifice his son for you will take you to heaven himself and be with you forever. And if you are a Christian like me, you are called into constant appraisal, doing as Mitch this, said this morning, picking between just the good and the best of life, to be the person that God wants you to be. And that's a challenge in and of itself. You don't stop evaluating what you've got. If you do, you risk losing sight of how valuable it is and losing the salvation that goes with it. Whatever your need may be, won't you come? as we stand and sing.